Welcome coming to our Bibles this evening. Thank you. Coming to our Bibles this evening to the book of Nehemiah. And we're turning to the chapter 10. Please. Nehemiah and the chapter 10, please. And we're going to read from the verse 29. Nehemiah, please, in the chapter 10. And we're reading from the verse 29. We're thinking under the title this evening, God and the Family. God and the Family. And we're going to think about the family unit this evening. We are going to think about it from these verses that we find before us in God's Word. Nehemiah chapter 10, and we're going to read from the verse 28, excuse me, not the verse 29, verse 28. Of course, uh, the people are signing to this covenant. We thought about that briefly the last time that they were going to commit to living holy lives. And in verse 1 it says, Now those that sealed were, and there's Nehemiah's name that leads a list of uh, many, many people who signed to this covenant to say that they were going to live for the Lord. And then in verse 28, we read these words, and it says, And the rest of the people, these are those who were signing to this covenant, and the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding, they cleaved to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his judgments and his statutes. And that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring ware or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Also we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly with the third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God for the showbread, and for the continual meat offering, and for the continual burnt offering of the Sabbaths, of the new moons, for set feasts, and for the holy things, and for the sin offerings, to make an atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. And we cast the lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for the wood offering, to bring it into the house of our God, after the houses of our fathers, at times appointed year by year to burn upon the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law and to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year unto the house of the Lord also the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written as it is written in the law and the firstlings of our herds and of our flocks to bring to the house of our God unto the priests that minister in the house of our God, and that we should bring the first fruits of our dough and our offerings and the fruit of all manner of trees, of wine and of oil, unto the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithes of our ground unto the Levites, that the same Levites might have the tithes in all the cities of our tillage. And the priest, and the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites, when the Levites take tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes unto the house of our God, to the chambers, into the treasure house. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the corn, 
of the, of the new wine and the oil onto the chambers where are the vessels of the sanctuary and the priests that minister and the porters and the singers and we will not forsake the house of our God. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word to each of our hearts this evening. I don't know about you, but it is good to get back into structure and routine and back into these studies again in Nehemiah. I wonder, I wonder do you remember Nehemiah? It's been such a long time since we've been in the book of Nehemiah and it's good that we're returning again here to chapter 10 this evening. I think it would be beneficial after such a long absence from studying the book just to recap the story so far. You'll remember way back in chapter 1 where we began in September that he received the news from his brother Hanani that Jerusalem was in disrepair and it was in great need of rebuilding in a, in a physical sense and also in a spiritual sense. And immediately we were introduced to the humble leader who we found so often on his knees and have continued to find so often on his knees throughout this book. And what an example we find in the man Nehemiah. I like to call people like Nehemiah prayer warriors. And we certainly need to saturate our own church fellowships, activities and prayer in these days. In chapter 1 we heard Nehemiah plead with the Lord for help regarding the disrepair of Jerusalem. And four months of patient prayer passed, waiting upon the Lord. And during those four months many other Jews would have returned to Jerusalem, but the building of the walls didn't start. And we find Nehemiah fasting and praying and weeping and seeking the Lord day and night. Praying that the Lord would grant him the answer to his prayer. And of course the king then gave him his leave as the cupbearer. And he went with the king's blessing. And they arrived in, in Jerusalem and he studied the, all that was wrong. And he walked around the walls and he looked at the damage. And eventually he stirred up the people and he ensured them that God was on their side. And there came that wonderful cry that we find there in the opening chapters. Let us arise. And build. I wonder in our community in Grange, are you ready to arise and build in 2023? I hope you are. And in his continuous prayer throughout the book, surely in our little series, series studying through Nehemiah, as the Spirit of God teaches you and I, we certainly have learnt already that patience and prayer go hand in hand. In Isaiah 28, verse 16, we read, Whoever believes will not act. Hastily, spending time before the Lord in prayer and waiting on him is a true characteristic of a child of God. Of course, the building of the walls came to an end and they faced much opposition during their time building the wall, but the Lord prevailed and they finished the wall. And in our last study, we witnessed a spiritual revival that unfolded as Ezra called the people together. And we saw in our last study that the reading of God's word is extremely important. We thought that we need a revival in reading God's word. We need to get back to the book. And that was the message of chapter 8 of Nehemiah. And then we saw the importance of prayer uh, personally and also as the church. And that was the message of chapter 9 of Nehemiah. And we need a revival in God's word. And we need a revival of prayer. And if we're going to know revival, spiritually speaking, and see lost souls won, we need to be striving to live holy lives. And that's what we thought about in chapter 10, the last time we visited it. And of course the people signed this oath that they were going to live holy lives. But the fact of the matter is, 
We can do all those things. Or we can read God's word and we can go to prayer and we can even write it down exactly how we plan a living. And just like these people, they'd sign an oath or sign something to say, yes, we're going to live for God. But here's what it comes down to. Here's the most important thing. It's total obedience to God's word. We just sign it. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And that's the emphasis that we find in chapter 10. Trusting the Lord, obeying his law, so that blessing would fall. But I wonder, have you noted something that I have noted as we've come to the second half of Nehemiah? Because what I have noted is after the walls were finished, and something that stood out to me is there's a lot of teaching for the family. I wonder if you noted it. And we're going to take the remaining time of this part of our meeting this evening to focus on our study title, which is God and the Family. You see, this was a family commitment that they made. It was the same sentiment, it has the same sentiment as Joshua when he cried to the children of Israel many, many years before, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And what I would like to point this evening out this evening is three areas that the people where the people committed to living holy lives individually and as families. You see, in chapter ten and verse twenty-eight, it's quite clear that there was an oath made that the whole family unit committed to. Read verse twenty-eight here. It says, "All they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God." Now, are you listening? Their wives, their sons, and their daughters. There's the family unit. Their wives, their sons, and their daughters. Everyone having knowledge and having understanding. You see, as we consider God and the family this evening, I want you to notice firstly that promoted was holiness in the home. Holiness in the home. In Nehemiah 10, really in this whole chapter, what it's saying is as they sign this covenant, is they're saying our behaviour, specifically in our marriages, is going to come up to scratch from this day on. Our homes are going to be a different place. Look at verse 30, where they say this. It says, We would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, and not take their daughters for our sons. Now primarily this is to do with marriage. And we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers in marriage. That's a principle that's taught in the New Testament and it's the principle and the foundation of a godly home. But when we put in this verse into the context of what we've read before, I believe this, the concept that's being taught here is a god. the concept of a godly home is being taught here. It's made abundantly clear. You see, I believe it's quite significant in chapter 8. We also read of the whole family unit was present when the law of God was read. Look at chapter 8, verse 3 with me. In chapter 8, verse 3, we read these words. It says, And he, that's Ezra, read therein before the street, and was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women, and those that could understand. Now that little line, those that could understand, suggests to me that children were brought to the hearing of God's word. That the parents, gladly might I add, brought the children along to hear God's word whenever it was being read. And I want to tell you something, dear brothers and sisters this evening. Your children, your grandchildren, 
your nephews, your nieces, watch you very carefully as you head out to God's house. I wonder what do they see? Do they see parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles who long for and love the word of God? Parents who gladly lead their children out to the Lord's house. Now I must say there's an epidemic across our land in these days. And I praise God that in the most part this attitude isn't found in this fellowship and long may it continue. But the epidemic in our land these days is what I call half Sunday Christians. That as long as you bring the children out in the morning service on the Lord's day, well the evening service doesn't really matter, half Sunday Christians. When the team says, do we really have to go back out this evening? That's the tense. How important is the teaching of God's word to their parents? <coughs> do the parents gladly lead the children to the house of God? Or, or is there a reluctance? Now of routine, the parent maybe just said, well, don't worry about it. We'll stay in and have family time this evening. Play games together. Well, the local fellowship gathers around God's word again. And the parent allows the devil to win and keep the children in from hearing the gospel again. There are some in fellowships and they just come out to worship out of mere routine. And it shows to the children. Their families, they can see this. They can see the attitude, oh I'll have to go there again. You know, I feel sorry for people who reluctantly head out to meet with the church. Because they feel that it's just something they should be doing. Rather than what they want to be doing. It should be a place where you gladly come. And have fellowship with God's people. Okay, the church aren't perfect. And there are people whom we'll have to exercise a lot of grace with. But it's where God's word is taught. And it's where we encourage and pray for one another. It's where we sharpen one another. It's where we grow in our walk with the Lord. So let me say to you, dear parent, grandparent, uncle, aunt this evening, your life, your life casts a shadow over the young ones in your life. Your life will bear influence on the young of our fellowship. And your influence will blossom in your young children's lives, whether for good and whether for bad. The story is told of a father who was attending a Bible conference. And at that conference it was clear that one of the preachers had struggled in the afternoon session. Later that night that same father was sitting at the dinner table with his children and his wife. And a close friend who was also a preacher had joined them at the table for dinner. And in front of his family the father said this. The preacher was useless this afternoon. And after the children had left. The, fa the family friend asked this. He said, how do you expect your children to grow and to listen to the influence of godly preachers if you speak like that in front of them at the table? I want to tell you something. More often than not, your children will grow up to be just like you. Therefore, we ought to teach our children to respect the men of God who stand in pulpits and the leadership in the local church who have the God-ordained authority over us. God has appointed elders and deacons for a reason. Therefore, we ought to teach our children to love and respect the word of God. But your children are only going to do this if you do. 
you must show them that you respect those who have been called of God into the position of eldership. And most importantly, you must show your children that you love, respect and obey the word of God. Teach them to be present at the throne of grace often. Teach them to be present at the table of the Lord. Remember, they'll grow up just like you. I know that there's an ex- there are exceptions to this rule. But sometimes the world will influence our children and it isn't due to a lack of a godly example. But generally speaking, right from Bible times until now, this is the pattern. What type of example are we setting for the children in this fellowship? What sort of example are you setting for the children that are found within your family unit? I wonder, do you do everything you do to keep the spirit of the world out of your home? And I wonder how you as a family interact with society around. Let's do a very quick check on some of the matters that would assess our holiness. How does the spirit of the world come into the home? That's what we're asking. How does the spirit of the world come into our assemblies? How does the spirit of the world come into marriages, to finances, to businesses, to careers, to occupations? Well, let me ask, is the spirit of the world manifest in the entertainments that we enjoy? That show on Netflix, Disney+, Plus, Amazon Video, that will let things slide. Does it promote holiness? Does it draw you closer to the Lord? Just think about it, even the places you go, we go here, there and everywhere. But the question is, what's the spirit in the places that we're going to? Is it drawing us closer to the Lord? And while we're on where we go, I've seen many Christians sitting in restaurants and bar settings with mocktails. And I've heard Christians say, well, it's not alcohol, so there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. And they're throwing these photos up onto social media. Well, what is a mocktail? It's got the appearance of an alcoholic drink, which is called a cocktail. And God's word tells me that we are to abstain from the appearance of evil. Be careful where you go and be careful what you're doing. What about the clothing we wear? I've seen many Christians, especially on wedding days, not dress modestly at all. What about the company we keep? What about the music that we listen to? Now it doesn't say in the Bible, I shall not listen to this, that or the other. But is what we're doing in this world in our society, is it adding to our holiness in our homes? Is it, is it bringing the Lord in or is it pushing the Lord out? Is it quenching the Spirit of God or is it inviting the Spirit of God in? You see, in these days, there's blurred lines. There's no distinction anymore between the church and, between the church and God's people and the world. It starts in the family. I could go on, but we must move on to the next point. Holiness in the home. But secondly, I want you to see, I want you to see families honoured the Sabbath. The families honoured the Sabbath. In verse 31, we read this. And if the people of the land bring ware or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sale, that we would not buy it off them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year and the exaction of any debt. Now, nowhere in the Bible... Do we read that the Lord's Day, Sunday, is the Sabbath? 
We're not Sabbatarian in the sense of applying rules and regulations of the Old Testament to the New Testament truth. The Lord's day is different. But let me say this. There are principles of the Sabbath that I believe should be applied today to the Lord's day. And I believe that what we have done, especially younger Christians, what we have done is mar the lines of distinction because the principle of the Lord's day is no longer honoured. It's to, it's to be the first day of the week. That pattern was set in the New Testament. And we're a new people of a new covenant. And we're to be distinct and different. And the Lord's day is to show our love for the Lord. It's a day that we set apart. Not to do the shopping or the daily work tasks. But to focus on the Lord. And to spend time in His presence with His people. And also to find that time that we claim we don't have to study His Word during the week. To read a book maybe to aid us in our understanding of His Word. That means shutting out distractions. I'm talking about Sunday afternoons, Sunday evenings. That means shutting out distractions. My family home growing up, that meant the TV was left off. And we were encouraged to read. Or to talk about what we learned at Sunday school. Or as we grew older, uh, to speak about what we had taken away, what the Lord had taught us in the morning meeting. And I know for me, Sunday afternoons became a time I loved reading and studying God's Word. It's where I first fell in love with the study of God's Word. And I began to think about what the preacher said in the morning, and I didn't take it for granted. I wanted to hear it for myself from God's Word. And do you know why that happened? It's because my parents removed distractions. And the Lord's Day was the Lord's Day. You know, there's so many Christians and they go home and they stick the football on and stick all these here things on. There's no thought of what happened in the morning meeting when you're sitting watching the football or sport or golf or Formula One, whatever's on. That doesn't encourage you to think of the Lord. It's one day set aside. I'm not talking about being legalistic. It should be something you love doing. And the question I want to ask you this evening and challenge your hearts is, does the Lord's day look any different to you in the home than any other day? And if you want to know how to celebrate the Lord's day, look at how the Lord celebrated it. Look at how the apostles celebrated it. And ask, are we celebrating it or are we marring the distinctions between us and the world? Does the Lord's day just look like any other day? Are we going with the crowd? Does the Lord's day in its totality belong to worshipping the Lord and studying his word? It's one day set apart. Is it too much to ask? Why could you not love reading his word? Thinking about him? Talking with the family about the Lord? These families, they honoured the Sabbath. They honoured it in their business. They weren't willing to do trades with those who came into Jerusalem. They weren't willing to do business with those who came from the surrounding nations. You know, some of those offers would have been great. Would have been great business transactions. They could have bought things off those people and done well for their businesses. But they committed in this oath. The Sabbath day was the Sabbath day and belonged to the Lord. Holiness in the home. The families honoured the Sabbath, but finally this evening there was provision for the Lord's house. The theme of the closing segment of Nehemiah 10 is found in the last verse, in the last words. And it's found there in verse 39, and it said this, We will not forsake 
the house of our God. We will not forsake the house of our God. The worship of God and the upkeep of the building, the temple, was paramount to them. Because what that looked like, what the, if the building fell to pieces, well, what that looked like was as if the people didn't care about their Lord at all. And they say here, the sentiment is so important. If you don't have this underlined in your Bible, you underline it. We will not forsake the house of our God. The worship of God was the centre of their lives. And it was the reason for their existence as a unique nation set apart from other nations. Therefore, everything concerning worship, even down to the mundane chore of providing firewood for the sacrifices was carefully planned. We read of that in verse 34. And these verses teach us that individually and even as families, we should be systematically giving for the support of the Lord's work and the upkeep of his house. It's a way of service on behalf of the church. You see, they gave financially. They gave financially. Before they sorted anything else out in their finances, verse 35 tells us that they gave the first fruits to the Lord. In other words, they didn't see what crops and what money they had left and then give what was left to the Lord. As soon as they had it, as soon as they had it, they gave the Lord the first cut. Of what they had. How we ought to give the Lord our first fruits. And not just what we've got left over. When, when the wage comes in at the start of the month. Do, do you get to the end of the month and think. Well how much have I left and I'll give that to the Lord. Or do you think I'll give the Lord the first of everything I've been given. You know as we give we ought to be supportive of the upkeep of the house of God. And one modern day application of this is to keep things in the church up to date. I'm not talking about state of the art. So often we're willing to do work to our own homes to keep them modern. Before we're even willing to do maintenance in the house of God. Any type of work to be done in God's house we maybe hold back because so and so did that so many years ago and we can't change that. And we prevent work from happening for sentimental reasons. When people walk into a building, it tells them what the, into a church building, it tells them what the people who worship there think of their Lord. How it's kept. And so important to give financially, but when we withhold our tithe, we also, tithe, we also rob God. Now specifically in this part of the passage, it's speaking about money, bringing your tithe to the Lord. Do we really give the Lord what he's due? There are missionaries in the field. They're waiting for offerings to keep up the work. Maybe you say to yourself, hold on a moment, the tithe is no longer a thing. Peter, that's an Old Testament law. That was in the law of Moses, it doesn't count for us. Well, the New Testament gives us instructions as well. And I actually shared these instructions with you back in, in March when we went through Malachi. The New Testament doesn't talk about tithing, but the New Testament does speak with great clarity about the principle of giving. In 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, it makes it clear that our giving must be periodic, done in regular periods. It must be planned, thought of in advance of giving, and it must be private, not done to make us known as generous givers. Also in 2 Corinthians in chapter 9, it tells us that our giving must be generous, giving more rather than less. It tells us it must be freely given, not done out of guilt or manipulation, 
when it tells us we should be a cheerful giver. I wonder is that a description of how you give? The people they give financially, but they also give of themselves. They give of themselves. Verse 36 tells us that the firstborn of their sons and the cattle was given to the Lord because the Lord had spared the firstborn of the children of Israel in Exodus 12. You remember that when the angel of the Lord passed through? The firstborn was devoted to the work of the Lord. And the Lord has saved each of us from a lost eternity. Eternal death. And surely, therefore, we should be those who are fully devoted to the work of the Lord, giving our best to the Lord in all that we do. That concept taught in Romans 12, living sacrifices. Do you remember how Martha, she was so busy being a great host, and you know that tidying the house, providing good food, that she didn't have time to sit at the Saviour's feet and to worship the Lord. You know, I had the privilege just last weekend of sitting and listening to Dr. Bill Woods give what will probably be his final address to a public congregation. And Bill Woods is an amazing man. What the Lord has done through him is amazing. And he said something that I think is very, very important. He said to the young people in the meeting, he said, be careful not to be too busy in the Lord's work that you end up spiritually barren. Be careful not to be too busy in the Lord's work that you end up spiritually barren. What did he mean? So busy doing that you forget to spend time at the Lord's feet, worshipping him, gleaning from him, learning from him. And so many of us can easily fall into that trap, being busy, 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 being like Martha, them being spiritually barren. Be careful you're not so busy in the Lord's work that your relationship with the Lord falls barren. Well, how are things for you this evening? How are things in the family unit? Is God given us place in your home and in your life? In all things, in all areas, has God been given access? Or are there blurred lines? Do you lead your family in striving to live separate lives from this world? Do you encourage the Lord's day as a day of rest in the Lord to dwell in his presence? Not just to be gathered with the church, but in the home as well. Do your family know what the Lord's day means to you? Or is it no different than any other day? <coughs> Do you give the Lord what he's due? Do you give him your first fruits? Do you give him the best hours of your day? Do you, have you given him the best years of your life? Are you devoted to serving him? Or how the month says, called unto holiness, how appropriate it was this evening. We have been called unto holiness. And this evening the Lord challenges us that in our family unit, to put things right. Here the people came to a point here in chapter 10 and they realised we need to commit to this. We need to sign an oath. And they even signed to a curse. Do you know what that means? It means that if they got it wrong as they were saying, Lord, you, you can curse us. Don't bless us. If we're not living for you, if we don't keep up to the promises that we're making, Lord, remove your blessing. 
I trust that this year, even this night, that we will come before the Lord as individuals, as families. And that we'll confess our sin. And that we'll seek his face, that he would show us where we have done wrong. Even that he would show us the things that we haven't done that we should have done. And that this year, as we look forward, as we seek to be a fellowship of families who are striving to live holy lives. And as a fellowship here at Greens, that we will be striving to live for the Lord in all ways then surely his blessing will fall. And surely we will know the Lord at work. Called on to holiness. How is the family you know? Let's come before the Lord and pray. Father, truly these are solemn moments. As we have listened to your word this evening. And Father, it comes with a challenge. And it comes with rebuke maybe for some of us. And Father, before thee this evening, I come before thee and I ask that you would cleanse me from sin that I have committed, maybe no one on the one. And Father, you would make me a clean vessel in your hands. Thank you, Father, that your grace and mercy is extended even to your people. We thank you that we've been forgiven for time and eternity, but Father, we realize at times we let you down. We allow sin to take over and we allow the world to blur our vision. Father, we pray that tonight you would lift our eyes up again to you. We pray, Father, that you would show us what it means to live a holy life. Father, we can't do it ourselves. We're at war with the sinful man every single day. So, Father, we thank you that you have sent the Spirit of God to dwell in your children. We pray that the Spirit of God will bring conviction in our lives and show us where we ought to honour you more. Father, as we look to the year ahead, we realise we're in great need of your forgiveness and we're in great need of striving to live these lives of holiness if we're to know the blessing of God. Father, we pray that within the family that we would be strong leaders. I pray, Father, for parents in this place this evening who lead their families, parents with children that, <coughs> Father, maybe have made that profession of faith. But, Father, I pray that indeed that you would help those parents to lead the family in it and show that example of what it means to live for the Lord, to love his work, to love his people, to love his church. Father, there's grandparents in the room tonight. Help them to the scene. There's aunts and uncles. 
Father, we pray that you would help us to be those great examples to the next generation. Father, we thank you for each child in our fellowship. We praise you for them. We thank you. And we thank you, Father, for many of them that have put their trust in Christ. We pray for those who haven't yet made that profession of faith, haven't taken that step of faith. We pray you'll save them young in their lives. We pray as their church family here that we will show them and teach them the way of the Lord, that each of them will grow in grace and truth and the knowledge of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we need you this evening. We need you to move in our lives and in our fellowship. Father, as we come to this time of prayer just now, we ask for your blessing upon us. We, we ask indeed that you will indeed make your presence known as we call out to thee. Father, we ask this in the Saviour's name. Amen. Amen. Let me just